Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Learning Out Loud. Today, we're joined by Brendan Richardson, a 1988 graduate of the University of Virginia McIntyre School of Commerce, who has been intimately involved in the university in the years since, serving as both a member of faculty and as the former co-director of the Gallant Center of Entrepreneurship. In recent years, Brendan has served as a co-founder, CEO, and executive chairman at Estrella, an innovative company using AI and satellite imagery to tackle huge problems at a global scale. We really enjoyed speaking with Brendan and had a wide-ranging conversation we think you'll love as well. Enjoy. Learning Out Loud is excited to announce that we're forming a partnership with College Contact. College Contact is a technology platform that connects high school students with college undergraduates for affordable and accessible college admissions advising. In short, your student gets to meet with a current college student at their favorite university. Once you set up an initial meeting with College Contact, they'll match your high school to a college student based on your preferences. This college student will mentor and advise your high schooler through the entire process, from forming a college list to brainstorming, writing, and editing college essays to applying for scholarships and financial aid. The best part? It's extremely affordable, with hourly sessions starting at just $60 an hour with our 20% off discount code, Learning Out Loud. So the first question that we've been asking most of the guests is if you could take us through kind of a two-minute elevator pitch of how you got to where you are today and what you're up to now. Sure. So um, I graduated from UVA, from the comm school in 1988, long before any of you were born. Uh, went, like most comm schoolers now and even then, uh, you know, there was like two or three main paths. One was to go to New York and in investment banking. The other one was to go to, to consulting. And I went to consulting in DC, um, super excited about it. Uh, and super excited about it because one of my professors in my first year of the comm school, my third year, um, had a guest speaker in class who was a venture capitalist. And I can't remember who it was or what his firm was called, but he talked about all the things that he was investing in. And it was like a fish farm and a shoe company and all kinds of crazy things. And he talked about his day-to-day -day experience as a VC. And that was the first time I recall thinking, oh man, that sounds like a cool job. And I kind of thought that consulting sounded similar to that. And so there were no VC job opportunities. Nobody was recruiting for VCs uh, on, on grounds, but consulting firms were there. And so I got this job to move to DC and it paid well. And I got super excited about it, got to DC. Um, and within a few months realized, this is not what I thought it was. I am not having a good time. I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm not sure anybody else knows what they're doing either, at least at my level. There were 60 of us recruited from all kinds of different schools, a lot of Ivies, UVA, Penn, and others. And nobody, you know, we were all so naive about like business and all sorts of stuff. Despite the comm school training, the real world was so different. And, and I just like, after about nine months, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just don't know what I'm doing and I feel like a failure. So I quit, uh, resigned, and because I needed to pay rent, um, the first thing I could think to do was to try and find a job doing something that I liked, that that would be novel. So I became a bike courier in Washington, D.C. Uh, for about nine months, just delivering packages on my bike. I got paid enough to make rent and, you know, live on ramen noodles and what whatnot. Um, 
definitely not an upwards career move, more of a lateral career move, but at least I was happy. So uh, after about nine months of that, I decided, I, okay, I got to get serious about this. I don't want to be in DC for any particular reason. So my dog and I uh, packed up and we drove out to San Francisco where I had some comm school friends from, from the previous year that were a couple of years ahead of me. Um, and they were kind of singing the praises of San Francisco. So I was like, I don't have any better ideas. So I drove out to San Francisco and kind of fell in love with San Francisco, which is easy to do. Uh, and then spent the next six years kind of doing everything under the sun. I was a burrito waiter. I worked at a bed and breakfast called Grandma's in Berkeley. I worked at Patagonia. I was an analyst at Wells Fargo. I worked for a publishing company. I was just basically, I was basically lost trying to find what, what should I do? Uh, it was sort of like having a midlife crisis, but in my mid twenties. Um, and it was fun. Like San Francisco's awesome and made a lot of amazing friends. And, you know, there's so many things to do out there. I was definitely enjoying my time, but from a career perspective, I was really spinning wheels and it was sort of, and, and because it was so expensive, even then you kind of needed two or three jobs just to get by. And so I, you know, waiting tables at night, I was kind of handing out keys at the gym so I could get a gym membership in the mornings. And then in the middle, I was working for a nonprofit uh, over in Berkeley that did uh, produced whitewater rafting world championships around the world, which was cool and fun and all sorts of adventure. But again, like not enough to make rent and, and really build a career out of. But in my time doing all that, I met a bunch of people one of whom was a member at the gym that I was handing out keys at behind the desk in the morning. And, uh, and that guy basically, you know, realized that I probably wasn't a, a, you know, a career desk behind handing out keys guy. And so we kind of got to be friends and he started asking about my background. I said, I went to UVA and he's like, Oh, you went to the comm school. I was like, yeah. And he's like, what are you doing handing out keys? I was like, I, that's a great question. I wish I could answer that. I don't know. <laughs> so he took me to lunch and he was a VC. It turned out he was a VC. And so I, I kind of went through my background and he was like, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I, at, the, at this moment, like having no better ideas, I said, I really want to go be a writer and move to Paris. Like, cause that's kind of what I was obsessed with at the moment. And he's like, well, maybe before you move to Paris, instead of handing out keys at the gym, come work for me. Because you, Can you build Excel spreadsheets? I was like, yeah, in my sleep, no problem. So he's like, come work for me as an analyst and then you know, save up some money. And then when you're ready to go be a writer in Paris, you'll, you, you can launch from there. So that's what I did. I became an analyst at Dominion Ventures working for a guy named Jeff Woolley, uh, who is still a great friend and mentor and on my board now at Estrella. And I spent four years at Dominion learning the venture business from the ground up and realized, A, I liked it. It was all the cool things that I thought it was from that class that I had taken. Um, I seemed to have, an, uh, you know, at least a proclivity for it in terms of like I could put together dots and build models and and find interesting companies and sort of see see how it all came together. Uh, and I got a couple of promotions and uh, one of those promotions took me to Boston 
Uh, so I spent a couple years in Boston. And while I was in Boston, I met another VC who was a neighbor and he was basically putting together a fund to invest in European technology startups and bring them into the US. Hmm. And that sounded like a pretty interesting strategy to me. So I joined that firm that was Vision Capital and moved back to the West Coast and spent the next eight years basically traveling back and forth to Europe and living in Geneva for a long time, investing in European startups and helping them expand into the US. That led to uh, a, a couple of epiphanies about inter investing internationally, which we can talk about, but also um, the, 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 the importance of a functional partnership whether it's in VC or a startup or anything else you do in life, making sure that all the people around you uh, that you're partnering with are all in it for the same reasons, you know, all, all kind of motivated in the same direction. And after three funds at Vision, we'd had some success and we were going to go out to raise fund four. And we kind of all had an honest discussion with each other and said, are we all really up for doing this? together for the next 10 years, again, signing up for another 10 years? And the answer was no, honestly, we weren't. And so we all kind of decided uh, in a very mature adult way that we were going to go do other things. And I thought I would join another venture firm or start my own venture firm. And in that process, it was about six months of figuring that out. I got a chance to spend a long weekend with all of the partners at Kleiner Perkins, which is one of the premier venture firms in the world, has been around for a long time, lots of success, Google, Yahoo, a bunch of other amazing winners in their, in their portfolio. And I got invited to, not as a VC, but to moderate a discussion between the Kleiner Perkins partners and hundreds of the world's experts in clean technology. So mm -hmm. renewable energy, batteries, and this is like, 2006, so long before sustainability and climate tech became a big thing, these guys were sort of beginning to invest in clean tech 1.0. And they invited all these experts from all over the world um, to come for four days and talk about the hard problems that needed to be solved. And those hard problems were going to be the investment thesis that Kleiner invested along. So I got to spend four days with the best of the best VCs around and quickly realized why they're the best of the best. Like I watched Vinod Kosla arguing with the world's expert in free lignin chemistry for ethanol conversion. And Vinod, the VC, was winning points on the technical aspects of pre lignin chemistry conversion with the world's foremost expert. And I sort of was like, all right, in the venture world, I'm a second string high school quarterback. <laughs> Vinod, that guy's Tom Brady, right? <laughs> I'm just not, I could, I could study for the rest of my career and, you know, work as hard as I could for the rest of my career. And I'm still never even going to be on the same field with that guy. Right. And that depressing as that was, it, it was a, it was a, a prompt for me to start thinking about, okay, maybe, maybe VC isn't the place where I'm going to build a super successful career. Who knows? There are plenty of average people in VC, but 
and and I would you know I'm, I would characterize myself as above average, but I wasn't that. Mm-hmm. And in venture, I later learned and kind of intuited even at that moment that unless you're there, it's it's more luck than it is skill. And so I started thinking about where else I could I could play in the startup world on that food chain. And a friend of mine, a fraternity brother from UVA, had started a firm in Charlottesville called Investor to manage endowment and foundation assets uh, on behalf of those institutions and deploy them as if they were the investment office on, on campus or in that foundation's offices. It was started by the former head of UVIMCO, UVA's endowment, a woman named Alice Handy, who sadly recently passed away. Um, but she was super successful taking UVA's endowment from like 29 million to about two and a half billion over 30 years. So she started this firm to help smaller endowments and foundations. So I moved back to Charlottesville to do that. Uh, it was awesome. Great experience. Got me back to Charlottesville. But a few years into that, I realized I really missed the startup space. And so I spun out and started working on helping startups fundraise and then eventually uh, started a few myself when I found the right people. Here we are. Wow, that that is fascinating. Yeah. So okay, Cir- the circuitous route. Yeah, I call it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So my first question um, is: so you you said that initially what brought you to VC and consulting was you heard someone talk about what their day to day was in that role. And I I know that I annoy them sometimes by I ask this question a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of times, but like. I think it often is opaque about when you say I'm a consultant, I'm a blank, mm-hmm. what that actually means on a day-to-day. What, what your day-to-day is, yeah. 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 So what what was the day-to-day in consulting or in VC and what did you like and what did you dislike about that day-to-day routine? Great question. So my consulting experience probably wasn't the full breadth of of what it was like to be a consultant because mind you, we were we were newly minted undergrads going into a 250 person firm, we didn't know anything about how the world worked. And so we were mostly tasked with sitting in windowless offices, building spreadsheets that modeled something about a business that one of the partners was working on. Um, But we didn't fully understand that, you know, business firsthand. And so it was kind of like trying to translate from Chinese into Hebrew into Latin and then back into English, right? Like, and that just was not satisfying. I thought what my day-to-day was going to be was like interacting with Fortune 100 CEOs and and boards and solving complex business problems. You don't get to that level, you know, right out of the bat. Some people were on teams that had that kind of exposure, but but I did not. So my day-to-day was mostly like supporting two, three, four levels up in the organization. Uh, that we're doing the real the real work of consulting. I think now looking back on it, consulting really is like it's trying to quickly and deeply understand a business's situation, usually a problem to be solved, and then going away and spending lots of intellectual cycles trying to come up with a fresh answer to how to solve that problem. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The the day-to-day also means that you you can be the most brilliant consultant in the world, but you bring that solution back to the customer, to the client, and it's up to them to implement it. And oftentimes they don't. 
or they don't know how, or they implement it badly and it doesn't work. And you're kind of on the sidelines. And that to me is the antithesis of being an entrepreneur and kind of the antithesis of being a venture capitalist. Because the venture capitalist is the day-to-day of being a VC is really two things. Yes, you're trying to find the next big thing, Google, what you know, Airbnb, Tesla, whatever it might be. Um, but you're also supporting the investments you've already made, which are invariably not going to plan and struggling because they're, you know, they're trying to create entire new industries. And so that usually doesn't go to plan. So you're trying to support this portfolio you've already invested in, which is actually sitting with the CEO and trying to solve real business problems that that matter to the life or death of the startup. And also think about where, what, what should the future look like? In a perfect world, what should the future look like? And then figuring out where, why that future doesn't exist today. Like what's blocking that future? And geez, if we invest in something that solves that block, can we actually make that future happen? Because if we can, presumably there's going to be a lot of money to be made and a lot of value to be created in that startup. You know, think about, think about um, Uber, right? Like, you know, nobody in the history of mankind ever got in a taxi ride, a yellow cab taxi and said, wow, what a great experience that was. Like taxis were the worst, right? Hard to flag down, dirty, like expensive. When you need them, they're not there. And when you don't need them, there's millions of them like, you know, sitting idle. And so the Uber guys like saw that and were like, that's not the way the world should be. The way the world should be some, you know, some other way. You should be able to order a taxi at will and have it, you know, be a good experience, clean experience. And then if it's not, you can give feedback and, you know, all the reasons that we we know Uber succeeded. That's that's a version of what every VC is trying to do is like figure out what the world should look like and then find startups that are working on making that true and then putting money behind them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And some advice that we've gotten from a couple of different sources and feel free to say this is something that you think is true or not. But in entrepreneurship, you should start with the problem and then try and build a solution around that. So it feels like when you're saying that that, you know, that conference in 2006, when we have here, what are the problems that are going to need to be solved and then figuring out, okay, what are the businesses that need to go around that to push that forward? Exactly. Exactly. Now, it does. It can work the other way, where you have a technology. You just, you know, somebody's invented. I don't know, anti gravity, right? That would be a useful technology. Now you could go find all kinds of problems to solve with anti gravity, but usually it's the the best startups work with a problem, and fall the entrepreneur falls in love with that problem, not with a solution or a technology that they've developed. You can you can if you're if you're diligent about it, you can start with a technology and go find the right problem for that technology to solve. Um, but it's it tends to be a little bit, um, it's more prone to failure going that way than the other way. Yeah, I like that a lot too. I actually wrote that down as well about um, the conference and everyone talking about the problems and then the VCs investing in that. Um, that was their investment thesis. They were just sitting there looking for the places to put money. 
yeah I've never thought about it that way either that um like what should the world look like and we should invest in what's solving that I like that a lot um I guess another question that I had I know that you mentioned before that you had a lot of epiphanies when you started investing in Europe and everything like that. Um, I was wondering like what that experience was like um, from a business standpoint, but also just like life, I guess. Like, what did you learn about the world? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of things, Um, maybe the main one and obvious in hindsight is that, you know, Europe is not, like a single homogenous place, right? It's it's made up of like 58 different countries, each with its own culture, its own oftentimes its own language. It's not, it's it's like investing in 58 different versions of of something, right? It's not like, oh, just go to Europe, right? And the US is a, to a degree that way, but but we're much more homogenous than we are uh, heterogeneous, and Europe is the opposite. And so one of the one of the epiphanies was that, um, particularly around entrepreneurship and startups in Europe, there there was sort of this non obvious realization that the best entrepreneurs, if you were going to bring them to the U.S., the best entrepreneurs were not coming from the big markets that you would think Germany, France, the U.K. They were coming from small markets like Sweden, Ireland, Scotland, Norway, Switzerland to a degree, places where their cultural kind of envelope and market was not big enough to create a real sized company. I mean, you could you could basically serve, you know, local customers if you're a restaurant in Geneva, for instance. But if you're a tech, if you're like a mobile technology or a software technology, there just aren't enough Swiss customers to build a real big business. And so you had to go outside your home market, which meant that you had to adapt and figure out what customers look like outside and what common problems customers were having outside of your little, you know, four walls. And and counterintuitively, entrepreneurs in France and Germany and the UK had relatively large markets, not as big as the US, but relatively large markets to build a French software king or a dominant, you know, mobile player in Germany. And then when they got to that point, they would want to go to the US. But by that time, they're kind of baked culturally. And so all the assumptions and all the ways they behave and all the marketing and consumer engagement or customer engagement that they built in their home market, you kind of had to undo to bring them into the US successfully. Whereas the small country entrepreneurs they didn't have any of it. They were like, we got to get the hell out of here, fill in the blank, Sweden, Norway, Ireland, whatever. And the first place they would want to go is the US. And so they, from the get-go, they were adapting to US business practices, you know, customer expectations, et cetera. It was actually easier to bring them, much easier to bring them into the US. And they were much more adaptable. Um, the second epiphany I had um, relates to the fact that most most entrepreneurs across Europe, across Western Europe for sure, and increasingly across Eastern Europe, they all speak perfect English. Everybody speaks perfect English, and it's easy to do business in English across the the entirety of of Europe with entrepreneurs. The challenge is that when we're using the same words, I'm saying, you know, commitment, 
risk, product marketing, um, marketing spend, customer value, customer lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, all these things. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're using the same words. Oftentimes we're using, we're interpreting or have different meanings for all those words, even though they're the exact same in English. And the, and a good, maybe an abstracted view of that is like, you guys are all Americans. You, you were born here. Your parents are Americans. They were born here. Okay. So every American citizen at some point in their early, you know, elementary school career, here's the following thing. In this country, in democracy, in the United States, anybody is eligible, if you're born here, anybody is eligibly president of the United States. Anybody in kindergarten today that's a U.S. citizen is eligible to eventually become president if they're elected and qualified, blah, blah, blah. And we have plenty of evidence that that's true. Like, just about anybody could become president because we've had just about anybody become president, right? Um, that idea of there is no feeling for ambition, at least in the in what you can achieve in this country, that does not exist in the same way in most countries in Europe. Mm. Like they're democracies by and large, but there's class stratification that are still in place from hundred thousand years ago and social norms that just we just take for granted. Like everything is available to us if we work hard enough, like work hard that that'll turn out that is not the dominant feature of most like national discussions that you have as a citizen of ireland or france or anywhere else and the and the more like stunning insight was that when i i have this inherent belief that risk and reward in this country are in inextricably linked meaning like take a risk and the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. Now you might, it might fail, you might fail, but you're failing in, in, in service of or in search of a big reward, right? And we have this sort of national narrative of, you know, our country was built on a lot of big risk taking and the biggest, most successful entrepreneurs take big risks, right? They bet it all on something or they start from scratch and, like take a bunch of risks and it turns out. And that's a really nice like backdrop to, you know, to encourage entrepreneurship. That that does not exist in Europe and in, in any anywhere close to the same way. And I can prove it to you because if you think about our two national holidays in the US, what are they? Our two fundamental national holidays. Uh, Thanksgiving and One? I mean, we have Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Fourth of July, Fourth of July, right? Well, Memorial Day is a good example too. I hadn't thought of that. So three, but Thanksgiving and Fourth of July, if nothing else, celebrate the idea that our forefathers took a huge risk, declaring independence from the the world's greatest superpower at the time, as if like no big deal. Like we're a bunch of ragtag colonies and we're going to take on our mother country, the world's elite superpower, and we're going to win. And we did. 
And now we sort of just look back through the lens of history, kind of like backwards through a telescope and just assume, well, of course that was going to work out. We Like risk and reward, like we took that big risk and here we're the greatest country in the world. Like that's just how things work, right? That's the, that's the story of 4th of July. And the story of Thanksgiving is the same. Like religious persecution, a bunch of pilgrims got in a boat and sailed like literally like going to the moon, like nowhere where they knew anybody or anybody even existed as far as they knew to start a new life. That's a huge risk. And, you know, they landed at Mayflower, Plymouth Rock, and the whole origin story of Thanksgiving, of course, led to the, the, the creation of the 13 colonies in the United States and, you know, the greatest country on earth. Like this idea of risk and reward is like baked into our national psyche. And it's, I think it's why Silicon Valley is still the dominant player in entrepreneurship. And you don't have, I don't know, Silicon Glen or Silicon like Prairie or Silicon whatever in, in other parts of the world because other parts of the world don't live that kind of 250 year experiment where we're the product of this huge risk taking and just assume, oh yeah, that's how that's how it works. You take a big risk, work hard, and you know, all all the thing all the good things happen. The rest of the world looks at that it's like insane. Yeah. yeah, that's just insane. That's that's the definition of insanity. The the net net is it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to find entrepreneurs in Europe that fully understand that and like embrace it. Some of them do. And when you find them, first thing they want to do is move to Silicon Valley and, and like live in that culture because they, they get it, but, but it's not everybody that says they want to be an entrepreneur in Europe that has that internally and internalized. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting way to look at like, like reflecting on the past. I think people remember the reward, not the, like the risk taken to get Mm -hmm. that reward. Um, Exactly. You run exactly. So are when you're looking at these investments, are you weighing the person themselves very heavily on, on who you're investing in? Yeah. Um, the, the adage in, in venture capital investing is just like real estate is location, 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 VC investing is team, 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 or it might be team, team and market. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good, uh, uh, picking the right market gives you all kinds of tailwinds, but the team has to execute against that. Like you can have a great market opportunity, the best technology in the world. And if the team can't execute or doesn't know what to do with it or stumbles or it's too slow, it's all for naught. So it's kind of team first, back the team. And, and if you back a really good team, they will find the right market and the right the right opportunity to go after that market. So what do you think are some of the traits that, or what do you look for in teams? And what do you think that, uh, VC in general looks for in teams. Yeah, it's it's um it's kind of hard to describe, but but it's obvious when you see it. It has to do with um well a bias towards action. So doing is the best form of thinking. So instead of you know spending most of their energy kind of like describing things and sort of analyzing things, they're like. They, they, they can't wait to get started and start doing things to prove what, you know, their, their hunch. The other thing that just matters 
you know, almost more than anything else is a, is a sense of, it's not perseverance per se, and it's not resilience per se, but it's a combination of those two things. So it's the best way I've ever heard it described was by Paul Graham. When he said a really great entrepreneur is like a really great NFL running back. Their job is to get the ball down the field and through obstacles and, and an entire, you know, other side that's trying to stop them and prevent them. And the best ones will find a way through all of those, those obstacles, whether it means running backwards or sideways or back around and, you know, cutting left, cutting right. Um, and even after being hit yards after, after first contact, you know, that, that's an entrepreneur because for sure, if you've got a big idea, the world's going to basically tell you it's not going to work. And you're going to, you're going to meet a bunch of resistant, like voices from incumbents and customers even. And if you're like, oh yeah, you're right. I guess it's not going to work. Like that's the end. Like you got to find a way or a, a belief that there's a way and then figure out how to, how to make that true. Also just violent optimism is a, is a good trait. Yeah. That's great. That's funny. That's a, it's an American football analogy, not a, you know, a soccer football analogy. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. Far more violent than soccer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not a, yeah. Not as much actual contact in, uh, in soccer. Right. Yeah. Um, so going, going back to the idea about the differences culturally between European countries and America. So if, if we were to say like, so Spotify, I think is a Swedish company, right? So like mm -hmm. taking Spotify as an example, as a company that, you know, started it over there and then came over here, are there any particular points that you think that that cultural background influences differently? Like the first thing I'm thinking of is Spotify didn't originally expand from just music to podcasts and audiobooks and just media in general so is it that sort of switch where it's when you come to america then the like the the kind of engine underneath the ventures here is that you want to expand you want to grow and go into other markets is that kind of the thinking or are there any examples that you can think of that a company would have that kind of flip switch once they come here mm, i think i think you know the world is so since that epiphany occurred for me, the world has changed um, profoundly in terms of information dissemination, cultural dissemination, et cetera. So I would say that while it's still generally true that most people in, in these countries, you know, in Western Europe and, and other parts of the world don't have this sort of inborn like sense of like, anything's possible there's there's plenty that do mm -hmm. and and i would say you know the ceo of spotify is probably one of those people just like well it's much easier now with the advent of you know 24 7 uh google searches and like social media to kind of absorb any lesson you want to absorb and and sort of bias yourself to absorbing all that and so Daniel Eck probably was like looking at the way, you know, the state of music and Apple, you know, and, and the iTunes and saying, that's ridiculous. Like everybody should be able to stream anything and artists should be able to, you know, put their stuff up anytime, like seeing what the future should look like mm -hmm. and saying, yeah, 
that can be built. I'll build it. And like when you, when you build it and, and that vision's correct, then it's going to catch fire no matter where it comes from, for sure. Um, you st- and to that end, I think Spotify is a great example of, of pure entrepreneurship, but I don't see a lot of artists on Spotify that are happy, right? Like you look at the total streaming revenue to artists, it's, it's, it's abysmal on Spotify. So one side of that equation works, like we all use it and, you know, can get anything, anytime, you know, we want, but artists aren't happy with that. And so I think you're going to see new platforms emerge that allow the kind of ease of Spotify, but also kind of cut out the middleman, which are mostly the music labels and allow consumers that love an artist's music to actually put their dollars into the, into the pockets of the artists. And maybe that'll come from Sweden or maybe it'll come from Estonia, or maybe it'll come from, I don't know, Tasmania. Like these ideas are, there's no, like your America has no outsized claim on ideas or good ideas. They happen everywhere distributed pretty evenly. It's just the ability to kind of execute on them and the resources to kind of execute on them and make them happen. It's yeah. much easier in a digital world, obviously. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Spotify kind of went from the David facing Apple as the Goliath to kind of becoming the Goliath, just in the same They're way. They're the Goliath. Yeah. 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 Just America was the David, and that's why we have that identity. And now we're kind of the Goliath in some ways. So, yeah. And most successful startups, you know, ultimately become Goliaths and, and, and maybe not hated, but, not loved uh to get to that kind of scale you got to do things that mostly don't please customers they they please shareholders so yeah um so going back to what you were saying in the very beginning how you had so many different experiences and jobs before reaching where you are now how do you think that all those experiences and a lot of them seemed like very short term how do you think that they added to where you are now and contributed to just the person that you are now too well, definitely some resilience got baked in, um, just you know, in sort of San Francisco survival mode. Um, like it, I don't know that I took away, you know, one lesson from this opportunity or one lesson from this crappy job or one lesson from being a bike courier. It was more like, just do what you have to do. Like, don't give up. I guess <laughs> that's the main lesson is like, life is long. Like when you think, when you think things are kind of at their darkest point, like there's stuff happening around you that's changing your life or about to like pivot your life. You probably don't know it, but don't, don't despair about it. Like the most powerful, the most powerful force in the universe, certainly one of them is reversion to the mean. So if your life is kind of crappy, it's going to get better. If your life is amazing, just pause for a second, enjoy it and know that it's not <laughs> going to stay that way forever. Right. Like get the most out of it because you know, you're not always going to keep making more and more every year than you did the last year. Like there are going to be down years. You're not going to be increasingly happy forever. Right. There's going to be, it's life kind of goes like this. And um, that, you know, that six years of doing all that stuff, that from a career perspective, that was that was like the nadir, but 
I met, so I met my mentor, my venture mentor as a towel boy, hand, handing out keys at a gym. Like that's a pretty good example of like, you know, you're down here, you know, probably not feeling like you're at the place you should be in your career or your life. And you meet the person that's going to like help you get to where you want to go. That's, that's the lesson. Be open. That's awesome. I like the reverse mean a lot too. I've never heard of it. Reversion to the mean. Oh, reverse. So for someone, you know, who's going through that, I guess we'll call it early life crisis right now. Like (laughs) what can you do to affect that in, in the positive direction? I mean, clearly. Yeah. Great question. Great question. I don't know, you know, you can read the secret and like manifestation, this, that, and the other thing. I don't know that any of that stuff works. It might, but the one thing that I think really matters, and if I look back on, you know, all the crappy things I had to do in jobs and, you know, just like the things I didn't want to do, um, I think the one thing that that really helps is if you've got to do it, do it and do it as best as you can and do it like with a, with a positive attitude. And I'm sure that Jeff recognized that, oh, you know, it's 5.30 in the morning. This guy is standing there like handing out keys, but he's chipper and he's smiling. And he like, I wouldn't be, you know, like, was that the way I was feeling? No, but like you're there, like interact with people in a positive way and people notice, right? People notice if you're willing to take on jobs that nobody else wants to do. So uh, there's a there's a great uh, YouTube, maybe it's a TikTok where some guy basically gives career advice to people at your age right now. He's like, just do like do 10% better than the average and do it with a smile and you'll be like, 30% ahead of like what most people are willing to do. Like when there's a job that needs to be done and nobody's volunteering, raise your hand and then go do it with a smile. And like people will notice that and people above you will notice that and, and be much more willing to give you an opportunity over somebody else that's actually like further up the ladder. Because like, if you can go do that crappy job and do it with a smile, Man, imagine what they're gonna imagine how they're gonna perform when when it's something that they enjoy, right? It's it's sort of maintain, I don't know, like a like a like a Zen level of of contentment, even when things are really bad. And in it's not don't acknowledge that things are shitty, but you know, do them anyways. And you get given opportunity. Opportunities will find you that you wouldn't have otherwise known existed. Yeah. yeah Think about like, if you go to, if you guys go to a restaurant, right. And have you, have any of you waited tables before? Yep. Anybody? There? Like, but we've all been to a restaurant, right. And, and it's pretty easy to determine how the waiter or the waitress's day is going. Right. They're either like happy, positive, not, you know, nice to see you. I'll be your server, blah, blah, blah. Like, pleasant experience or just like they're just there boning it in don't want to be there don't really care like you're forming an impression about that person and if you had to go hire someone you know (laughs) who are you going to hire 
you're going to hire the person that had the right attitude or the good attitude, even if their day was crappy, because that's who we want on our team. We want people with that positive attitude. I think that's the number one thing anybody can do at any stage in life to just like, yeah, everybody has difficulties, buck up and, and, you know, do the work and be positive about it. And opportunities will definitely come your way. Yeah. I really like that. And then, so a question I have along those lines is you were talking about before that in America risk and reward are linked. So did the way that you conceptualize risk change or was that different back then when you, you know, you know, kind of have less to lose when you were, you know, trying to get your start there, did the way you think about thought about risk change as you went from there to kind of establishing yourself and looking at different companies and seeing how they're progressing throughout their entrepreneurial journey? Um, I, I've never thought about that question from in, in that perspective. I still feel like I'm relatively risk friendly today. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I, this is the second and a half, let's call it third company I've launched. I'm 56. So not, you know, like I went back, I went about it backwards, right? Most people start companies, success or not success, and then end up as VCs investing in other people's startups. I went, I stumbled backwards into VC first and then got all the lessons about what not to do and then started, started companies. So there's still, you know, there's still an element of risk to starting something. I feel like I've got a better handle on how to measure that risk or, quantify that risk. Like I, like I only start things that I think have a very, very, very high value proposition or a technology that's like truly disruptive. So, you know, not, not, um, not kind of winging it. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, anything could fail, this could fail and what's going to happen. I'll start again. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't bet everything I have on everything I do. Like you, you, you learn ways to kind of mitigate the downside between what you're doing work-wise and what's happening in your personal life. Like haven't bet the house and all of, all of the kids savings on, on Australia. It's just, right. you know, if it works, it'll be great. If it doesn't work, investors lost some money and, you know, they're big people. They put their pants on every morning and they're investors. So they know that's a risk and we'll, we'll do something else. Yeah. Calculated. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you want to tell us a little bit about Australia now and, and how that came about and what you're doing with it now? Yeah, sure. So um, my last company is a semiconductor company. We started that with some technology out of UVA um, that uh, a couple professors developed and I, in my VC career had invested in a, a, maybe a dozen semiconductor startups. And so I knew enough about the difficulties of semiconductor startups uh, to evaluate whether this was really worth going, going after. And after, after a couple of short meetings with Ben, my co-founder at UVA, I realized he was really onto something. So we started that company with another professor from Michigan and uh, built it up, got some investors. And then after four years, according to plan, and th this this was the plan, I basically said, uh, 
it's time to bring in a real CEO, somebody from the semiconductor industry that knows how to take it from where we've got it to, to the next level. So we recruited somebody from Intel uh, to take it over and he's still running the company as a CEO. That freed me up to think about what was next. And right around that time, I met somebody from NASA through uh, a mutual connection who had overseen a team at NASA that had used satellite imagery to find archeological ruins all over the world. And uh, there's a bunch of TED talks on it. It's really cool. You're looking at infrared spectral bands and because of the vegetation that grows over limestone shows up in a different infrared spectral band, you can sort of see where limestone is under the ground. And limestone was the building material of the ancient world. And so you can actually see all kinds of buildings, coliseums, all sorts of interesting stuff. So this NASA guy said, that's cool. Let's go do everything else. Let's go find gold and lithium and like hurricanes and volcanoes and earthquakes and whatever. And so I was like, that's a big idea. We can raise the money for that. So we did and quickly realized a couple of things. Uh, the NASA data was not infinitely usable for anything. Like it was like very specifically, it was a happy accident that you could see limestone. Um, the other thing we realized is lots of people have been trying to use satellite imagery in novel ways for a long time. And they're all struggling with the same challenges. It's hard, it's difficult, it's hard to get to, it can be very expensive. It's hard to handle, it's hard to analyze. And so we realized we needed to pivot to not trying to find the killer app for satellite imagery, but build a better tool that can enable everybody to find killer apps with satellite imagery. And so we embarked on more of a software build than a let's use satellite imagery to go find fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to today, we have this platform that enables pretty much any organization whether it's the Nature Conservancy or Cargill or uh, Trammell Crow or Apex Energy to use satellite imagery to go find things or know things or discover things or monitor things that they just couldn't do without our platform. So it allows you to download the imagery, task satellite images for your own purposes, ingest that, analyze it with machine learning and AI, push those results to your business processes. And it depends on what the customer wants to do, but we've got this sort of end-to-end -end platform. And along the way, we've been building out sort of use cases for imagery and other geospatial data. And we're now at this pivot point where we know some of the really valuable, non-obvious ways to leverage satellite imagery, um, particularly in in the renewable energy space and in this coming wave of electrification. So climate tech, you know, 101, everything that can be electrified will be electrified. And that's gonna in that's gonna require that the grid infrastructure changes dramatically, that EV charging stations start to proliferate everywhere. So we can all drive EVs without worrying about running out of out of juice. That data centers will be super efficient and co-located with, you know, grid infrastructure so they get unlimited power when needed, blah, 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 blah. All like the, 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 the infrastructure of the United States, like the foundational infrastructure of the United States is shifting 
pretty radically with climate change. A lot of it's being driven by this climate tech investing and the IRA, in Inflation Reduction Act. And that turns out to be basically something that you can see happening in real time with satellite imagery. Like you can figure out where all this infrastructure is and where it's going to and where it will show up. And so you can begin to make decisions about how to locate or build out or optimize the second and third order infrastructure build out like EV charging and mm. renewable energy. Yeah. All these, all these projects that are, that are rapidly shifting us from a hydrocarbon powered economy to a clean electron powered economy. So we're building out those kind of applications now with satellite data and our customers are kind of consuming that uh, on, on in their own business cases. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, and it seems like here you went from solution, which was the infrared, then back from there to a problem that you anticipated and experienced as you had that solution and then parlayed that into a different solution. So that's... Yeah. 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 Or maybe the, the infrared thing was an insight or a, like a, ooh, that's cool. Let's go do that. But right. applied over here, that quickly didn't work. Like you know, seemingly good idea turns out to be bad idea, but the bad idea leads you to an adjacent good idea. And that good idea leads you to perhaps even a more directed good idea uh, that that isn't obvious to most people. Because most people, when you think about satellite imagery, they think about Google Earth. They're like, oh, I want to look at my house. I want to look at, you know, my school. I want to look at my my ex-girlfriend's house or something like whatever, right? Like, Plenty all the ways people use Google Earth, but there's all these non-obvious insights you can derive if you have Google Earth and you can actually get real-time imagery and begin to apply machine learning and computer vision to it. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Instead of looking at my house, look at all the houses similar to my all house. All the houses. In and who which of all the houses has solar on it and which of all the houses doesn't have solar on it. Yeah. That's a really big insight for rooftop solar developers, right? And then there's second order business models around that, like every rooftop that has solar on it in most states are generating solar renewable energy credits that they are probably not aware of. And so you can go and say, would you like your tax credit? We'll help you get it and take a piece of it, but it's free money and you didn't know, but you have solar on your roof, right? Yeah. Yeah, and all that can be all that can be scaled pretty dramatically if you can see it from space. Yeah, that is very very interesting for sure. Yeah. Um, going back to one of Chapin's original questions, what's your day to day like doing this? Um, so it's a it's a broad mix of so my role in the company is not technology, right? I am not the technologist, never the technologist. I'm the guy that. When we when we started building this thing out, was like explaining to investors or potential investors like why this matters and why it can it unlock a lot of this value, right? And so my role mostly remains that today, sort of strategic direction. That's kind of a catch-all for what the hell are we doing um, and what should we be doing? But it's mostly translating all of this sort of down in the weeds work 
to investors and potential investors and saying, hey, you know what? You, you know what's really cool? We can find all of the electric grid substations in the US. And it turns out that if you were to go look at any other data source for where all those electric substations are on the grid, you would only find about 60% of the ones that actually exist and are on the ground. We can see all, we know where they are. We know the land parcel they sit on and we know the ownership of that land parcel. Why does that matter? Well, it's because the, the substation is the interface for anything that's happening to get electrons on or off the grid. And so anybody making a land decision that requires like efficient and um, cost-efficient access to grid power like if you can find me a, a substation that I didn't know about now, all of a sudden, all this land around that substation opens up for EV charging, renewable energy, battery storage, data centers, you know, so like warehouses, so on and so forth. So it's sort of like nobody would think, Oh, finding substations is like, wow, that's really cool and valuable. Well, it's when you start thinking about what that leads to, or what that is the precursor to, all of a sudden it becomes super interesting. So it's it's explaining that in an investor-friendly way that says, and therefore, you know, we're, we're gonna generate X amount of revenues from all these companies because we can tell them where this hidden stuff is. Hmm. That's really cool. Cause I, 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 I mean, I can speak for myself. I always thought about Google Earth almost as like a static, snapshot thing so if you're taking the same technology and having it be real-time satellite yeah. data that's yeah that's really cool. yeah. yeah yeah google earth is static uh in the sense that it's it's a cloud-free composite of the entire world right like when when these satellites are snapping pictures continuously literally like 300 terabytes of satellite imagery is collected every 24 hours wow. that's like that's like 5,000 google earths but a lot of it's covered in cloud. And so all you see is white. Mm -hmm. That They're not gonna put white on Google Earth, right? Um, and in Google Earth, you don't know when that picture was taken. Like that could be three years old, it could be two months old. It's because they're creating this cloud-free composite, but you can't go back and look in time and you can't see like the most recent picture if you want to. So you could think about what our platform is kind of Google Earth on steroids. Yeah. We can go look at the entire image history of a given place and look at how it's changed. We can task a satellite to go take a picture tomorrow of that same place and look at it like in, in, in better than real time, like in future time. And then you can do all kinds of kind of ML AI powered analytics on that mm -hmm. time series and say, oh, I'm really interested in that thing, tennis court, substation, parking lot, whatever. And I want to go find all examples of that thing over this really broad area. You can do that. Like you can just do like 100 degrees of freedom from what you see on Google Earth, um, which opens up a lot of questions that can be answered. Right. Yeah. Well, the downstream effects of having the real time aspect are just. Basically. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, 
we've been tracking, you know, large stands of longleaf pine uh, for the Nature Conservancy because longleaf pine is a very valuable crop. The 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 pine needles are like <clears throat> way more valuable than the timber mm. because the longleaf pine needles are the perfect mulch for landscaping south of the Mason-Dixon line. It's like wow. a multi-billion dollar industry a year. So the Nature Conservancy wants to make sure all those pine stands are healthy and growing and protected because it's a huge economic engine. And then we do something completely different for our ag customers and something completely di different for our real estate customers. But it's yeah. all being powered by this, this sort of ever-growing body of satellite imagery and other geospatial data that we fuse with it. Yeah, well, I'm sure even the ski resorts in Boulder would want to know, kind of look at how much snow there's been over the last couple of years. How am I going to project out how much we need to bring in versus how much is actually going to fall for us? So yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. Cool. We have a ski we have a ski resort customer in Utah. Yeah, wow. not in Colorado, but in Utah, and it's the, it's more of a real estate application than a snow application. But yeah, you could do you could you could do all kinds of analysis about snowpack and the runoff and like you know like if you guys got it out anywhere in the west to ski this year you know it was like just some like best in 30 year snowfall in utah and colorado and other places and so a big question and concern was when all that snow melts we're going to have potentially historic flooding if it melts too fast and so there was a lot of analysis about what you know what constitutes a real flood zone versus a historic flood zone um with all this runoff, but a million questions to be answered with this stuff. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's a little bit about me. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up, but <laughs> like I'm on the right path. Yeah. No, it sounds at the very least directionally correct. So directionally correct there. Well, that's yeah. all I need to know. I just yeah. I'm <laughs> heading in the right direction. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so we have a couple of questions that we've been asking all our guests at the end um, to try and kind of see how in the same way that we're seeing time series analysis about the snowpack, we want to see, you know, how are people thinking about these questions? So one of them yeah. is how how you define success and what kind of actionable steps do you see there are for people our age to to get to that version of success? Yeah, well, the good news is I think you guys, th there's it's not even a, a step like uh, the most. So over the course of 30 plus years, like you, you know, on this twisty winding circuitous path, I've met a lot of people. Um, I've met a lot of very successful people um, by, by standard measures, right? Like have their own planes or multiple planes, like dozens of homes, net worths with bees after them. And I've met a bunch of people on the other end of that spectrum that have almost comparatively nothing and tons of people in between. And the one thing that I can tell you for sure is happiness does not accrue to one side of that spectrum or the other. Yeah. It's, it's not a function of how much you have, how much money, how many things, how many, how many outfits, how many cars, how many zeros, how many commas you have in your net worth? Not at all. I know some really successful um, 
like like you know top 0.001% people who are miserable and i know people in that same zip code who are fundamentally happy because they have things in their lives that that truly matter they have their family they have their kids their kids are healthy they have their parents they've got relationships and friendships that they rely on every day that's wealth wealth is for lack of a of a more um politically neutral term wealth is how much love you have in your life at any given moment and that that that's measured with friendships with your relationship with your family that don't always go well obviously right like that that doesn't mean that you have to make peace with everybody in your family but if you if you can or you have good functional relationships with family members that's a that's a form of wealth that matters so much more than how much is in your bank account and 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 don't you know what i'm not don't get me wrong what i'm not saying is you know things don't matter but they don't matter to your happiness like yes it's easier to not worry when you have enough to pay rent and you have you know enough to put your kids through college like i'm not i'm not diminishing the fact that it's it's a struggle to be poor but you can choose to be happy in your circumstances in this moment and by choosing to be happy in your circumstances whatever they are that leads to what we talked about earlier which is an attitude by which you try it like you're at least in that moment satisfied and that comes through you're serving yeah do i want to be serving you know like people at four in the morning in a diner probably not but if I accept that that's where I am and I make the most of it, it's going to lead somewhere else. And at least I'm going to build a relationship with some of those people, a positive relationship. And so to me, happiness, success is about having that kind of life where your relationships are good and strong and the people that, that are negative influences in your life, you, you, you move away from, or you, you you disband from those relationships while we all seek you know material wealth at whatever level we think is necessary but that that starts you know now for you guys like just realize that your careers are journeys there's no end right there's no place you get to where it all becomes clear and works out right like I'm still trying to answer life's big questions. Um, you know, don't get too attached to anything like career, title, salary, house, spouse, like just like high participation, low attachment to outcome. Yeah. That's the that's the path to success because if you can do that, it's much easier just to enjoy the journey and where you are at any given time and know that you know, as long as you have the right attitude, you're going in the right direction. That was a really, really good answer. Yeah. Um, I do have one question about something that you said. Um, mm. So earlier you mentioned that the best teams have people that really like to take action and they don't just like talk about ideas. But then you've also mentioned that it's important to just let opportunities come and like trust that things are going to work out. And I've kind of like, I think I've been talking about this with both of them, that it's hard finding the balance between 
like taking action on your life and like thinking that you have full control versus just trusting exactly like what you were saying, trusting that everything's going to work out. You're going to meet people. You're going to have these opportunities. So like, what would you say about that? Um, having that, how to, how to strike that balance. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's a really good question. It's a deep question too, because yeah. it yeah. seems like those two things are at odds with each other. Yes. Like, right. Like just be happy where you are. Things will happen. Right. So I'm just going to bliss out in my living room and wait for the world to come and offer me like a $500,000 a year salary. That's not what happens, right? Typically. They actually have to. I know. Bummer. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. And if it, if it, if it did work, it would have already worked. Um, there, there's. I'm not saying don't take action. Um, but recognize that that. So it, it comes back to the, the phrase I just used, which is high participation, low attachment to outcome. That's kind of a, it's, I don't know if it's, if it comes from Buddhism or I don't even remember where I heard it, but it, it's kind of like, yes, participate fully and, and act rather than just sitting back and thinking about how you should act. Like the action is what precipitates the opportunities and the good things. It's like, maybe a shorthand version is, um, it's important to be lucky, but we can, we can actually create our own luck, right? By being prepared, by leaning into things, by doing hard things. Like you don't win an Olympic medal unless you train and winning an Olympic medal is lots of effort and, and some significant amount of luck too, right? Like things have to go your way. But if you just rely on luck, it's not going to happen. And it's it's a little bit of that. Like, find a path that interests you, that you, you know, people say follow your passion. I That, to me, I don't think that's the right term. I think, like, be intellectually curious and follow those instincts. And some of them might turn into career opportunities. Some of them might just be things that you're interested in for life. But try and find some intrinsic interest in what you do and follow those paths. And if things don't seem to be working out, but you feel like you're intrinsically following the thing that you care about, just relax a little bit and give it some time. Like maintain the right attitude and eventually the opportunities that you think that you're seeking will find you. And oftentimes they don't look like what you think they're going to look like, right? I wasn't. I wasn't at the gym handing out keys thinking any day now I'm going to meet a VC and get, you know, <laughs> it's on the calendar. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. That's a really, right. It's like life is somewhat random opportunities that you intuit whether to lean in or not. Cause in the moment you have no clue where they're going to lead, but just trust your instinct on that. Right. And, and with a positive attitude, your instincts generally are right. Like you were saying too, like that, take the first step. It's not, that's not going to be the end all. Like a lot of times you can't see the opportunity from where you're currently at. You know, you got to. Exactly. You Every it. day, like, like the next step opens up more of the Vista, right? And the next step opens up more of the Vista and more of the Vista. And it becomes, it becomes easier over time. It's like, like I recognize, like when I was your age and, you know, 
or maybe a year or two after, and I was in the consulting firm, like hating my life every day, it didn't seem like, okay, Brendan, have a great attitude and things will come your way. Like what, that's not where my mind was. My mind was, how do I get the hell out of this place? It feels like I'm burning my skin off every day. And so the next best step for me was to just get out of that place. That was the action. And the, and the best thing I could think of was, what do I love to do? I love to ride my bike. How about if I get paid to ride my bike? That's even possible? Well, turns out, yeah, I can make just enough money as a bike courier, get in crazy good shape, and be out of this hellhole, and then I'll figure it out from there. And sure enough, I figured it out. Like, you know, it wasn't all in one go that I figured out the path to VC. It was like, I just knew the next step I had to take. And then that led to the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you're into like stoic philosophy or anything, but there do seem like elements of that, you know, control what you can control and don't get it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's, it like, it, it all like, I always told my students in my class at the end of every semester, like you guys are going to graduate from UVA this year, next year. Right. Like it's hard to make, it, it might feel like your next step out of UVA is like this big, like, oh my gosh, freighted with all this momentum and like, then what? And in honesty, you can't make a wrong decision. You just can't. You're going to end up where you want to go, whether you go this way or that way or that way or that way. I mean, a bad decision would be like, drink a bunch, get in your car and drive hundred miles an hour up route 29. That's a bad decision. But in terms of like what you do next out of UVA, choose anything, literally anything that, that seems and intuitively feels right to you, do that. And versus maybe certainly in the comm school, I think a lot of students are like, well, I'm really interested in this, but I think I need to go do investment banking or consulting or fill in the blank. Like, and they're, and it's kind of like, ah, but I'm really interested in that. I'm like, literally you can choose one. It doesn't matter. You're going to end up where you want to go anyway. You might have more fun going in the interest route instead of the banking route, but neither one of these decisions is anywhere close to fatal. It's all going to work out. Right. Yeah. I can't wait. You're going to be fine. Because yeah, we've had so many conversations, like basically exactly like this. Um, I think that us three, we really recognize that we we can do these other things. Like we want to do these other things and we recognize yeah. that and this is kind of like why we're doing this podcast, getting exposed to these types of conversations and stuff. But I think a lot of people, the majority of people our age don't think that they can. Yeah. Something else is holding them down. So I'm definitely looking forward to people hearing what you just said because I'm sure we'll mean more coming from you than us. So <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you it all works out. And uh, that's not to say, you know, anybody that says they have no regrets, I think is probably lying. Like there's regrets, like looking back, should I have done this or should I, you know, I don't know. Should I have been a burrito waiter at that restaurant instead of that restaurant? Like, of course, right? Like, but major life decisions, just, you know, you're, you're, your soul knows you you can intuit the direction you're supposed to go 
And if you don't go that way and you make you make a decision that takes you the other way, you can always go back. You can you can course correct. Life is very forgiving. Life is very forgiving. Yeah. So I guess just a few more like very general questions. We could go, kind of go a little bit faster on them. Um, what are some general problems or frustrations that you see? We're kind of trying to gather that data ourselves going back to what we were saying earlier. Um, it could be like within your actual business or just anything else really. General frustrations? Man, I mean, day to day, there's always frustrations that, particularly in a startup, that things aren't going fast enough. You know, sales aren't happening fast enough. Customers take too long to decide. Uh, we're always sort of like, no matter how much money we raise, it always feels like we didn't raise enough. Like, you know, there's always more to do. But, but those are just like. I don't know. That's like saying my frustration about, you know, swimming in a lovely pool, the water's too wet. Like, it's just like, they're, like, that's just part of the game. Right. Um, I, you know, in life, I think, yeah, I think the thing that irks me is, you know, our political climate and going back a little bit to, you know, the earlier conversation I think most people in this country have forgotten like what I would, I would encourage everybody to go back and read 1776 by David McCulloch and some, some history about how unlikely, how almost unimaginably unlikely the, the creation of the United, the successful creation of the United States as a standalone entity actually is like, this is, the fact that we are here today is a miracle, just full stop. And we forget that. We kind of, we, we think that we are somehow entitled to be the greatest country with the biggest economy and the la, 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 and freedom and democracy. Like most people don't know what, what that, they don't fully understand or even think about what that means. And I and I just and it bums me out because if you travel enough, you realize so many people like the majority of the world's population has nowhere close to the freedoms we enjoy, and the ability to argue amongst ourselves about such tiny bullshit that you know when other people it's life and death every day. So that frustrates me for sure. And I think if we don't sort it out internally, it will get sorted out for us from some external force. We'll be forced to reckon with our own idiocy sooner or later but other than that i mean and climate change frustrate like that that scares me like like i i'm hopeful i have i do have violent optimistic hope that we're going to figure this out i think there are pathways to figuring it out what i worry about is that people don't seem to be taking it seriously or yeah it's serious but by the time they realize how serious it is, it it might be too late to reverse some of the, the more like disastrous effects of it. Like we're looking at this heat dome, you know, like, it, it, I don't know. It just seems like the evidence is so glaringly obvious to me that that we're under this climate climate emergency and doesn't seem to matter as long as people are making money selling internal combustion engines and pumping gas out of the ground. 
that's fine. Like let somebody else deal with it. But those are my, those are my big existential frustrations day to day. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just want to ask you from before you were talking about, you know, you, if you take one step out of UVA, basically any direction is going to bring you back to, to where you should be or where you're going to be. And that, that almost seems deterministic. But then when you were talking about, um, like the United States and the miracle of the ability for us to be a nation and a strong nation and everything else. Um, how, how do you reconcile those two things about are things inevitable that they will turn out the way that they're going to, or are they, how much of it is agency? How much of it? I don't know. That, that might be a little bit too far, but yeah. We're getting super deep now. Like, so, yeah. so, I mean, we could go really deep and just say, do you believe in a dualistic universe or a non-dualistic universe? If it's non-dualistic, nothing to do. Just sit back and wait for the 500,000 or <laughs> not. Like it's all, it's all like, or does time even exist, right? In a non-dualistic universe, time doesn't exist. That's a, it's a figment. Yeah. Um, it's all a single point in, in the time, you know, in the, in the, in the space time continuum. And so our awareness is just that, you know, might move along those different places, but that means that time travel back and forth is totally fine, blah, blah, blah. So how do I reconcile that like day to day and get out of bed in the morning? I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah. Is like, I don't know. I like, I think it's a non-dualistic universe, which gives me great hope that no matter how much we mess up everything, it ultimately won't matter. It's just one version of an infinite number of universe, possible universes. Um. But gosh, like while I'm here in this little, you know, in this multiverse slice, when the world is melting down, I'm going to play the game and try and like do the right thing or what I think is the right thing. And with regards to the U.S., you know, I, I'm I'm rereading 1776, like a committed group of people with a passionate belief in the way the world should be versus the way it was like cha like changed the odds like no bookmaker in human history would have bet on the continental army to defeat the british army right. none they wouldn't have it, it like it was it was a million to one and washington and nathaniel green and a bunch of other people that that bought into the vision of what became the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, like, changed. They they basically changed the odds significantly. And, you know, you can see a small version of this right, right now happening in Ukraine. Like, look at people that are committed because their lives depend on it versus people that are fighting because they've been ordered to fight. Mm. Like, you could you could look at the American experiment as kind of a version of that, right. and people whose livelihood depended on survival and, and winning are way more motivated than people are like doing it for pay. And so, I think yeah, we all have to do. We're all given you know the path that that we're supposed to trod. We make decisions along that path. Those paths fork, but we all we all kind of have. I don't know, guiding principles, right? Now, it might not be 
at your age, like I want to solve climate change or I want to like solve world hunger. But it's like, you know, most people want to do good things and have a positive impact in the world, however they define that. And I think you find these pathways and these forks along the road as you go out into your career and you're like, do I do this or do I do this? Or do I, you know, do I go get a law degree or I get an MBA and, you know, all the decisions you guys will think about. And you have to weigh that against like, well, what do I want to do? Like, what, how do I want to be, how do I want my life to look in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And those are, those are, you know, those are big questions and the answers are never really super, super clear, but I think you've got, you can intuit a sense of what you, you can certainly figure out what you don't want. That's a good start. Thanks for listening to this episode of Learning Out Loud. If you found anything useful, please share with a friend to help us grow. We'd also appreciate it if you could rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next week with a new episode.